Have you ever um, have you ever seen this television show that seems it seems pretty popular um, uh, where these uh, individuals climb on things and jump on things and run across things and every once in a while they'll they'll slip and fall and go splash right into the water. You, you know what show I'm talking about? Have you ever seen this show? American Ninja Warrior. Yeah. Some of you are wannabe ninja warriors, right? Um, yes, we have a young we have a young ninja warrior right here. When he grows up, he'll be <laughs> okay, see, Sunday morning uh, viewing, I guess, uh, get you kind of prepped and ready for, for worship. Um, so I was watching this show this week, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's always fun to watch this show and to kind of hear about, um, hear people's backstories, and, and here's this, this one young man or young woman who's never done this before and it's just they're brand new and they're going to go out there and they're going to give it all they got and and then some of the times some of the time they get out there and oh they didn't know how to do that one obstacle right and they fall and and other times they get out there and they they just go through all those obstacles they get all the way to the end they're they're up that wall and boom they hit the button they finish the course right well then there's the stories of those heroes, right? The ones that everybody, if you watch the show year by year, you, you know their name, you recognize them, and, and they, they did American Ninja Warrior three times, and they finished it. They were in Vegas last year, and they did this, and they did that. And then they get out there, and everyone's got high hopes for them. And then on the second obstacle, splash right into the water. Something doesn't go right. They hit an obstacle they've never done before, they make a slight mistake, and down they go, right? Um, I think our lives are a lot like that. We've got a lot of obstacles in front of us, a lot of things that are keeping us from getting where we need to be, from, from achieving the purposes that God has for our lives. Um, in fact, uh, the folks in Nehemiah's time dealt with the same type of, of, of situation. Remember this, this story of, of Nehemiah that we've been looking at now for two or three months, and we've been going through this book in the Old Testament. We've, been, we've seen how the, the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and how Nehemiah heard the news and God stirred up his heart and caused him to pray about it and to, then to act on it and to go be with his, his people and to help them rebuild the walls so that they could bring restoration to their city and, and to who they were as a people. And, and we've watched them on this journey. We've followed them and they, they had many people opposing them for a long time. And yet God gave them victory. God gave them success. They, they rebuilt the walls. Then they began to study God's word together and God convicted them of their sins and they responded to that, and they begin to make changes, and they begin to make uh, reformations, and they begin to discover again uh, the covenant that God had given to them, the calling that they had as a holy people of God. 
They went through all of these things. And last week we saw them dedicate the walls of Jerusalem and the gates and, and, and gather uh, and, and finally at the house of God, the temple, and worship and offer sacrifices with great joy. We've seen them do all of those wonderful things and they have a great track record here in the story in Nehemiah of doing what God has called them to do, being what God called them to be. But then we get to a point at the end of the story where we discover some obstacles, some things that are going to be challenging for them to negotiate and we're going to find out how they do that and what might we learn from it? What might we do because of what we're reading here and what we're learning here today? So, let's look together at Nehemiah, shall we? Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to begin with the last paragraph of chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning at verse 44. And I want to ask you to bear with me as we read from this point all the way to the end of the book. We're going to go all the way through chapter 13. Um, don't worry, there aren't too many difficult lists of names. This is kind of interesting stuff and maybe some stuff will jump out at you as a little bit challenging as well. Um, that might be a good thing. But... Follow along with me as I read aloud from Nehemiah chapter 12, beginning at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the, the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them into to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God." And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers and they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave for the king and came to Jerusalem. 
And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food Tyrians also, they who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and I said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon... King of Israel, sin on account of such women. Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? 
and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood, wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Whew, this is the word of the Lord. I want to draw your attention to something in this, in this whole passage. Just one verse here as we begin. Um, you'll notice that this, it, most of this is written in the first person. It's written by Nehemiah. It's, it's his, his telling of his story. It's his diary or his journal or his memoir. And he begins, um, he, he adds several prayers to this section of, of his memoir. Um, you remember before how, how he would just, um, in the course of telling a story, he would, he would call out to God and he would pray to God. We saw that several times back in chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4 um, and a couple other places at the end of chapter 5, he would say, remember me, God, remember me. He said he wanted God, he wanted to call out to God to, to remind himself as well as to, to pray to God saying, God, I'm going through difficult times. I am trying to do what is right here, so remember me. I wonder, um, I think uh, there in verse 14 is where, uh, is where the, the remember me, oh my God prayer really jumped out at me. Um, because he's asking God to remember him um, concerning this action that he took and setting things straight with the Levites and, and with, with getting rid of Tobiah, uh, the, the, the Ammonite. And, and he said... God, don't wipe out my good deeds. Don't wipe out the love that I had, that I have, that I have enacted for you, for what I've done for you and for the house, your house. And, and he ends it by, by saying, and for his service. The house of my God and for his service. What were, the, what were they, they doing what was all of this, uh, all, all of these things that were going on in this passage of Scripture related to? It was related to service of God. It was related to service of God in the temple. It was related to service of God related to the priests and the Levites. Um, it was related to service in, in regards to um, the day that they, they would set aside as a day of rest. And this service of God... Um, this service of God is a theme throughout Scripture. In fact, we could, I, could, I, could, um, I could give you this as, as essentially the main principle of this entire message, and it's this, that we are created for His service. It's throughout Scripture. We are created for a service. This service is the work of guarding or keeping what God has entrusted to us. Service is the work of guarding or keeping what God has entrusted to us. Remember back to Genesis. Genesis 
the creation of the world, the creation of the first man and woman, the placing of Adam in a garden. And why was Adam placed in the garden? Why was Adam placed in the garden? Genesis 2 verse 15 gives us the reason why. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Why would I why would I bring you why would I recall that verse for you today? Genesis chapter 2. What does the garden have to do with being created for his service? Especially related to Nehemiah and the temple and, and all the rest. Because we are created for that kind of service that God gave to Adam in the garden to work the ground. God gave mankind work to do. Not play to do, so to speak, but work to do. He gave man work to do and he said you are to work the ground and you are to keep it. The idea of keeping it, keeping the work, keeping something, was to guard it. To, to protect it. To make sure that it's going to stay whole and complete. That the work that God has entrusted us to will not, will not morph into something else. Will not experience mission creep. <laughs> will not creep into other priorities, lower priorities. And this idea of keeping or guarding began in Genesis chapter 2, and we see it continually throughout the story of God. And we even see it in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 16, uh, Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So we were given this, this mandate from creation to Guard to keep what God has entrusted to us. And then we see in the New Testament that that guarding and keeping relates to our own personal lives as well as to the work of the gospel. Our own personal lives as well as the work of the gospel. That seems clear enough. We just need to find out what those things are what it is that God's called us to do, what is the work of the gospel, um, and we just need to do those things, right? Right? That's pretty, pretty straightforward. We are created for His service, we find out what His service is, and then we do it. And we'll be just like, we'll be just like the American Ninja Warrior who crosses the finish line and hits the buzzer. We've done it for His service. We, we finished the race. We've, we've, we've earned the crown, the wreath, the reward for, for crossing the finish line. However, there are obstacles in the way. Are there not? <laughs> 
That's the problem. The problem we face is that there are obstacles to, to this service, to accomplishing the service that God has given us to do. And that's what I want us to look at throughout the rest of this passage. This passage is so long, it really belongs in like five or six messages. So what we're going to do is just we're going to look at the highlights. I want to identify these obstacles for you and what we ought to do about them in our own lives. So let me, let me uh, point your attention to the first one. And I'll, and I'll give it to you in a form of a statement. And then we'll look at what the Word has to say about it. We are created for His service. Therefore, let us cleanse our, our, excuse me, cleanse our lives of compromise with the world. Let us cleanse our lives of compromise with the world. Look with me at, at chapter 13, verses 4 to 9. Nehemiah 13, verses 4 to 9. What do we have here? We have the story of Eliashib, the priest. Now, some would argue, some have argued that this is some other priest. There's several people named Eliashib, and this is, this is a priest, but maybe he's not the high priest. Well, we, we met Eliashib, the high priest, way back in the beginning of the story. Way back in chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1, Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. He was right there the whole time, Eliashib. He's the high priest. He's building the sheep gate. He's um, rallying his fellow brothers, the other priests, to, to uh, accomplish this, uh, this goal of of rebuilding the city and doing their part. And, and he's been part of the dedication. And he's been part of the scripture reading and the studying of God's word in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. He's been there the whole time. And we see that Nehemiah was related, or excuse me, Eliashib was related to this guy, Tobiah. Tobiah, who was one of the enemies of Nehemiah from the very beginning of the story as well going all the way back to um, chapters 2, all the way up until chapter 6 and 7, when they finally finished the, 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 uh, the walls and established the work of guarding and, and doing, doing all of those things. We see that Eliashib was actually related to Tobiah, and that instead of keeping the gates clear, or excuse me, keeping the rooms, the chambers of the temples um, clear and open for use um, of, uh, of worship of God in that temple. He said, hey, uh, Eliasha, we got this big old room here, and you could have a really nice place. Uh, Tobiah, you could have this really great place to live if we just cleared out some of this holy stuff, some of this temple stuff, um, some of this stuff that we use to worship God, and we'll just get rid of that, and we'll clear out this chamber for you. Why would he think he could get away with that? Well, we have a little hint there in verse chapter, verses 6 and 7. While this was taking place, Nehemiah says, I wasn't in Jerusalem. I was gone. I had spent 12 years in, in Jerusalem, 12 years in Judah, and in the twelfth year, I went back to the king because uh, I was his, his cupbearer. I was an important part 
of the king's work. And I stayed for 12 years as governor, and then I went back. And, and then after being back with the king, it might have been another six years or so, might have been a couple of years, may have been six months. But at some point he said, well, king, I need to go back. I, I need to go back and check on him. Maybe, maybe somebody had come and visit. And maybe somebody had come and said, hey, Nehemiah, check it out. Since you've been gone, <laughs> such and such has happened. Um, since you've been gone, um, uh, Tobiah moved into the temple. He's actually living in the temple. I don't know. Nehemiah doesn't say. I suspect that it, probably if he would have heard that story, he probably would have recorded it. But whatever the case is, he came back to, to Jerusalem, and then he discovered what was going on. He discovered what was going on. And he says he was very angry. And he threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Have you ever seen somebody, uh, seen, I don't know, it doesn't happen very often, um, but I'm, I imagine like in the big cities and uh, some of those scenes from some, some movies where the, where the, where the lady is, uh, the young lady is yelling and throwing things out of the third story apartment and, and the young man's at the, on the sidewalk going, what's going on, hey? And she's tossing all of his stuff out. Um, maybe it was something like that. Maybe Nehemiah, he was angry and he threw all of his stuff out um, of the chamber. And he gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and brought back there the vessels of the house of God. Why was that such a big deal? I mean, if you know anything about the temple and how it was a holy place, first of all, you would go, oh, well, that doesn't seem quite right. Uh, but the other thing uh, about it is it contradicts everything that they had committed to up to that point. I read to you the beginning. Chapter 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather them into their portions as required by the law. And they had order and they had structure. And they had these, uh, a place for everything and everything in its place in the temple. And as soon as Nehemiah left, Eliashib thought, well, now that Nehemiah is not here and he's not holding me accountable to this, let's go ahead and, let's go ahead and let Tobiah come in here. This illustrates the obstacle of compromise. The obstacle of compromise. We can so easily compromise on even just little things rather than, rather than seeing our lives as the people of Israel saw their lives uh, to be called to a holy calling. We tend to see ourselves like everybody else around us. We tend to see ourselves as citizens of this country rather than citizens of a heavenly country. We tend to see ourselves as part of this culture rather than part of God's culture. And so we'll compromise on just about anything. We'll compromise on the way we speak, the way we talk, the words that come out of our mouths or the things that we joke about. We'll compromise on the way we act towards other people. We will treat some with contempt. We will treat some with love because that's what everybody else in our culture is doing and thinking. We will compromise on, on uh, things like uh, justice for all people. 
We'll compromise on sexuality. We'll compromise on human dignity and value. We will compromise on all kinds of things with the world. Yet, we are created for His service. Therefore, the command, the exhortation of this passage is, let us cleanse our lives of compromise with the world. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. That's exactly what Paul urged Timothy and his readers in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 to 21. When he called him to... Uh, let me find this for you so I make sure I get this right. When he called him to this. Now, he uses this illustration. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work for his service, I would add ready for every good work. What does it mean to cleanse our lives like that? To cleanse himself from what is dishonorable. And we look at our lives and we, and, we, and we identify the things in our character. We identify the things in our thoughts. We identify the things in our actions. We identify the things in our habits that don't belong there. That aren't consistent with honoring God, with loving Him, with serving Him. And we say, those things don't have a part here. Those things are foreign. Just like Tobiah and all of his belongings were invited to leave the temple chamber. We cleanse that because that holy house was for honorable use. And our lives are for honorable use as well. Our lives are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are created for His service. Let us cleanse our lives of compromise with the world. Well, the next obstacle came up immediately after, and it was related to neglect. We are created for His service. Therefore, let us give joyfully to prevent neglect of God's work. Let us give joyfully to prevent neglect of God's work. Look at verses 10 to 14. He's, he's inspecting the work. Um, Nehemiah was gone for some time, and he comes back, and he finds this out. He's, he finds out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. The Levites, and he probably, the, the, well, he says, and so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, had each fled to his field. The Levites and the singers had been given a portion of the offerings. And so that those offerings could then be apportioned out and to help keep the work of, of, of the service of God at the house of God um, to continue. And they hadn't been doing that. So he confronted them on that. He confronted them and said, what are you doing? Why have you forsaken the house of God? Notice he didn't say, why have you ceased to give portions? He said, why have you forsaken the house of God? Because when the Levites and the singers are not able to 
get their portions. They're not able to um, to get their the essentially what you could we would term as their their income, their salary, so to speak. And they each fled to some other work. They left the work of the temple, and they went to the other work. Is he's basically saying by not giving joyfully. For the, for the work of God, so that the Levites and the singers and the priests could do their work, you're forsaking God's house. So he set them up and he appointed them and he, he got treasurers and he got um, assistants and he ensured in verse 12 that, that Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And they, they took care of it. Well, this is a command of the Old Testament to bring in a tithe. A tithe is a tenth. A tenth of their, all of their grain, a tenth of their wine, a tenth of their oil, a tenth of every, everything that they, they received as an increase. In a, in, a, in a society like that, a culture like that, the economy was based on, on trade goods. It was, it was based on commodities. It wasn't based on a monetary system. It wasn't based on credit. Like our economy is, um, but they would tithe their income of all of those sources. They would give a tenth of it all to to the temple, so that it would so that it would supply the needs of the Levites and the singers who were working there. Well, this is not only a law in the Old Testament that they that they abandoned, but it was also a commitment, a commitment from. Um, uh, that they had made uh, previously in verse 47, the last verse of chapter 12. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and then in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites. And then the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron because the sons of Aaron were the priestly line and the priests were uh, one family out of all of the Levites. So there was a a portion for the Levites and then a portion from them for the priests. And, and back in chapter 10, remember when they prayed that prayer, because of all this, we're going to make this covenant. And so they prayed and they, they made a commitment. In verses 32 to 39, they said, we take an obligation. We obligate ourselves to this. We're going to give yearly. We're going to give for the showbread, the regular offering, the burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons. We're going to do what you've called us to do. We're going to give all of these things at all of these times. We're going to be faithful to give. We will not neglect the house of our God, they said. Yet, they come across uh, come across this obstacle, this obstacle of neglect. Perhaps they were so concerned with their own uh, status, and they thought, well, can we get by with this in the house of God? So they began not to give their first, and they began not to give joyfully, but they probably began to give grudgingly, and that led to giving not at all. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8. If, if, lest you think that this was just an Old Testament um, principle that doesn't apply anymore, 
Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth in chapter 9, beginning at verse 6. He says, the point is this, and he's talking about giving. He's encouraging the church to give what they have pledged to give, to give generously. He says, the point, of th point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, that's a good pr principle and it can apply to a lot of areas, but especially to this area of giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then check out verse 8 with me. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You may abound in every good work. Paul is reminding us, <laughs> reminding us that giving generously Giving cheerfully, giving with joy is not going to result in our lack. It's not going to result in us not having what we need for the times that we need it. On the contrary, uh, this, this act of giving joyfully it, combined with the wise execution of our lives in service to God um, um, careful management of what God has given us, stewardship of all of the resources, not just a tenth of the resources that God has given us, will result in God making all grace abound to us. We will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. I'm remembering uh, a time, oh boy, 12 years ago maybe now, where... Um, uh, Cheryl and I have not always been, um, we've not always been good with our money. When we, were, when we were young, we made a lot of mistakes and got into trouble with, with debt. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, how are we ever going to get out of this stuff? And thinking, that we got we to do this, we got to do that. And, and then how are we going to give to the church? How, how are we going to give a tenth of, of our income when we've got so many debts to pay? And at one point, we sat in church under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and looked at each other, I think, and maybe right even right there on the spot, if not in conversations following, said, I think the Holy Spirit's saying, we just need to give a tithe of our income and just be faithful to do that. Give 10% and, you know, God's going to help us. God's going to help us uh, pay the bills. God's going to help us get out of debt, um, pay off credit cards, do whatever. And so we made that commitment. <clears throat> and um, I'm not, I think it was joyfully. I think we were doing it joyfully. Um, we, wanted to, we wanted to honor God. And it, it was not, we were not being coerced. Um, we were being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And we gave joyfully. About two months later, our, our van died. And we went, oh, snap. What do we do now? We have to replace our vehicle. That means um, borrowing money to buy a car. Not a new car, but a used car. How are we going to do this? And we thought, God, why did you let this happen? 
We were giving to you. We were tithing. We were trying to be faithful and, and, and not neglecting your work by giving joyfully. And uh, we didn't know how things were going to work out. We went and bought the car and we, we and ended up with a small uh, monthly payment. Well, it was large for us, but small in comparison um, to what others uh, are, are uh, burdened with. But um, we did that. And the following week, I was offered a part-time job working in our church, making double what... Um, double what that uh, car payment cost us. And I thought, wow, now this is an interesting thing that God is doing. Um, we were trying to be faithful, to give joyfully and generously of our income, and God let all grace abound to us so that in all things we were sufficient for everything. Now, it's not always everybody's story, it was our story. It was an experience that we had, and I think God was t teaching us something by that. He was reminding us that He is in control, that He provides, that He's going to take care of us as we are faithful to Him and to His work and to His service. And um, we managed to uh, overcome that obstacle at that time, the obstacle of neglect of God's work. But there were other obstacles. In fact, that obstacle of neglect actually led into another obstacle, the obstacle of fear. The obstacle of fear. We are created for His service. Therefore, let us rest, rest without fear that the work will be accomplished. Look at the next passage. The next passage in, in Nehemiah, beginning at verse 15, refers to problems on the Sabbath. They were, they were called to honor the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, and for, for them that meant that from sundown on Friday evening till sundown on Saturday evening, they shut the gates, they stopped the markets, nobody went to the, to the, to the, the town square, nobody bought or sold anything, everyone stayed in their homes or gathered uh, for meals with their home in their homes, or they they had the Sabbath offerings at the at the temple as well, and certainly they worshipped at that time too. But they they shut everything down. They quit the work and they rested. But look what was happening. They had given up on the Sabbath, and they were working seven days a week. It doesn't say they were resting on another day. It doesn't say that they had decided, oh, well, let's get another day of rest in there. No, they just kept working day in, day out, day after day after day. The grain and the donkeys and the wine and the grapes and the etc., etc., etc. And then the, the trade with the Tyrians, they, they were from a, a, a city, a, a region not far away. And they would travel down there and they were selling things on the Sabbath day. So rather than a day of rest, which is what God designed that day to be, it was another day of work. And I, I believe that the, the neglect of rest is really a fear that the work will not be accomplished. I think that when we fail to rest, we're actually stumbling over the obstacle of fear. That we are afraid that if we don't work through this day, if we don't 
work continually that we won't accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish. We won't accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. We fear resting, that inactivity, that, that unproductivity. Is that a word? It's not really a word. Yet, Jesus himself said in Mark 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. God gave the Sabbath as a gift to us, not so that we could dispute on it, about it, not so that we could argue, should we do this or should we, not, should we do that? Not so that we should, we should dispute whether we should pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath, which was the context of Mark chapter 2 when Jesus said it. Not so that we should debate whether or not we should do good works on the Sabbath and heal on the Sabbath, which is what Jesus was facing in Mark chapter 3. After he, right after he said this word, no, the Sabbath was made for man, for us, for human beings, to rest from their labor, to trust God that he would do more with six days than we can do with seven. And so we rest. We work that into our lives as a rhythm of our lives. In the New Testament, the, uh, the day that, that, that followers of Jesus, uh, the, the day that God's people worshipped, was uh, uh, included the Sunday, the, the first day of the week. They began to worship on that day. The Jews, Jewish Christians at that time, continued to keep the Sabbath day as a holy day. But as the, as the message of the gospel went out and the, the practice of worshiping Jesus on the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, um, spread to uh, people outside of the Jewish culture, that Sabbath day ceased really to be a, 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 a practice in the Greek and the, and the, the Gentile uh, believing world. And the, the first day of the week began to be the day that people would set aside for worship of God. And, and um, it's a long story. It's a 2,000-year-old story. But here we are today where a lot of people consider Sunday a day of rest. And I would argue that the day of rest was accomplished by Jesus in a, in a, very, in a spiritual sense. That the day of rest, that the Sabbath was accomplished through His work on the cross. And that in Him we rest without fear that the work will be or will not be accomplished. And we, we are confident that it will because it's what Jesus has called us to. So we rest in Him, but the principle remains. Can we trust God to do in six what we cannot do even in seven days of work. We were meant to rest. We were meant to have that rhythm in our lives. Well, the final thing here, the final thing, the final obstacle 
aside from compromise and neglect and fear, the, kind, the final obstacle in many sense, in many ways is the most difficult one. And it's the obstacle of idolatry. We are created for His service. Therefore, let us confront vigilantly the idolatry in our lives. And look at what happened to the people here. And why, and let me show you why I will put this as idolatry. In those days it says, the, He saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These were, were people of different uh, cultures. They were people of different religions. They were people outside of their faith. And, and he says he, he, he observed their children and half of their children spoke other languages and they didn't speak the language of Judah. They didn't know the tongue of the people or, or of the culture of the, of the language that they should have known, the language of, of God's Word, the language of the, of the Old Testament Bible, but they only knew the language of these other people. So he confronted them, and, and look, look, look at verse 25, and how serious he was. On he confronted them, and cursed them, and beat them, and pulled out their hair. Whew. Um, I'm going to leave that for another sermon, because we don't have time to unpack all those things. But essentially... He was enacting justice in that culture at that time for the things that they had done. And he calls on them to remember Solomon. Solomon, one of their greatest kings, a wise king. We get Proverbs 4 from Solomon. Um, we get the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes from the, the Solomon's uh, tradition. And, and uh, he was their greatest king, but what happened to him? He failed in the end because he took many foreign wives that led him into sin, that led him into idolatry, led the people into idolatry. That was the point of the marriage. God was not against uh, interracial marriage. God is against idolatry. God is against anything that's going to be in our lives that will cause us to sin. So he calls us to confront this vigilantly. To confront this vigilantly. 1 Corinthians 10 says this. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, he says, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. There's an idol in our lives. We don't we don't, um, we don't simply pacify it. We don't simply ignore it. We don't say, eh, there's an idol there. I'm just not going to focus on it. He says, flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Just like uh, Joseph in, in the book of Genesis did when he was confronted with a temptation to sin. And so he ran from that temptation. He ran from it. Which is what Paul was saying in this whole passage in 1 Corinthians 10. He, he referred back to the idolatry that took place in Israel and how they rose up to play and eat and drink and to worship idols. And they were, they were punished for it. And so he said, God will provide a way of escape. Run from it. Flee it. The proverb 
that we had heard read earlier. Um, Proverbs chapter 4. I'm going to draw your attention to verse 23. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. For from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Be vigilant about the idolatry in your life. What are the things in your life that you love so much? What are the things in your life that when you uh, abstain from them, when you lose them, or even the thought of having them gone from your life causes anxiety, causes stress, causes you to say, no, never, that will always be in my life. Those are idols. Those are the things that we worship. And keep your heart with all vigilance. <laughs> the idea there is to guard, to keep what God has entrusted to us. Our hearts are vulnerable. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Look what he said, that next phrase, for from it flow the springs of life. It reminded me of Revelation 22. See, in the garden, in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, things were wonderful, things were beautiful, things were right and perfect. And God had given Adam the task of guarding that and keeping it. And then in Revelation 22, we return to the garden again. We return to a place where the river of the water of life flows through the, the, the great city, throws, flows through the people of God. No longer any cursing, no longer any sin, no longer any death. And then this call, this call goes out Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We are created for His service, yet there are obstacles in our way, obstacles of compromise with the world, obstacles of neglect of God's work, obstacles of fear that the work may not be accomplished unless I work all day, every day. There's the, the, the obstacle of idolatry in our lives, which is probably the greatest obstacle of all. Yet, yet, we come. Jesus says, come. The Spirit says, come. The Bride of Christ, the Church says, come. Come, take the water of life without price. It didn't cost us anything to come to Jesus, to take the water. It cost Jesus His life. Will you come to Him? Will you come and have your life transformed by the only one who can transform it so that your life is a life of service to God and His glory and His purposes and ultimately our joy in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for the time we've had to hear from You. Thank You for giving us Your Word. Thank You for the warnings. 
God, I, I confess that I'm probably much like the people during Nehemiah's time, that I will go strong for a season. I will stay vigilant for a time. I will, I will work hard up to a point, and then, uh, then I will face these obstacles. And God, I confess that they have, they have kept me from your purposes and kept me from doing the work you've called me to do too many times. God, for any of us who are in that situation today, I ask that you will receive our, our confessions. You will... You will... Restore us and, and um, uh, bring us back to the, the true purposes that you have for our lives, the service uh, that our lives are to be uh, to you and for your glory. I pray, God, that you will help us to see the goodness of, of your son Jesus who, who died and paid the penalty of our sins uh, for us, who, um, who Lord, uh, became sin for us. Literally became sin for us. And, and suffered and died in our place. Father, I pray that you will um, you will help us to walk in the newness of life that you give us through your word, through your transforming work that the Spirit does in our lives, through hearts that believe and trust in you. May that be our testimony as we leave here today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.